Sequelcast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. It's the future of our race not worth a single human life. You'll never stop at one. I'll take you all on. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are vast that I inform you. Hello and welcome to Sequelcast 2, a podcast looking at films and a franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. And I am Thrasher. We're continuing our look at the Transformers live-action trilogy starring Shia LaBeouf, which I believe translates into, like, God Save the Beef. I don't, I'm not even joking about that. Um, once, a, <laughs> once again, directed by Michael Bay, uh, produced by Don Murphy, the same guys that did the first one, with a screenplay by Aaron Kruger. Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orchi. Um, Kurtzman and Orchi, you know, are known for doing stuff like Lost and Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, they also did writing on the first film. Aaron Kruger, I think, is new to writing the series. He's, he's written a lot of things. Um, Scream 3 comes to mind. But he's uh, written a lot of big tentpole uh, studio movies. Um, this stars Shia LaBeouf, Megan Fox, Josh Duhamel, Tyrese Gibson, and John Turturro, a lot of the returning cast. One thing I found interesting, I watched this with the audio commentary. The commentary is pretty mediocre, but there's some interesting things. There's the character Leo Spitz, that's his friend in the film, his college oh, yeah. roommate. Originally, guess who they wanted to get for that part? Uh, Seth Green. Jonah Hill. Huh. And um, they went with this more unknown guy instead, but I don't know if Jonah Hill could have sold the conspiracy theory i'm a geek running a website thing um I, I like the actor they have in the film i guess is my point uh music by steve jablonski lincoln park and uh hans zimmer lincoln park that's not really true they have like one single off the soundtrack um <laughs> cinematography ben sarison this came out in 2009 so two years after the original and uh for those that don't know these transformers movies huge budgets right and uh, so doing these big-budget sequels, like, two years apart from each other is pretty fast, really. Um, running time of 150 minutes, bloated, bloated, bloated. Um, off a alleged budget of $200 million, this made $836 million worldwide. So compared to the uh, the first one, that's uh, $100 million more. And um, so there you go. And there's a lot of behind-the-scenes... Uh, trauma that and drama that happened with this picture well is, isn't this the isn't this the, the film in the series that megan fox threatened to walk off of um she did and i think during press interviews for this she compared michael bay to hitler and that directly resulted in her uh being written out of the script for transformers 3 but later they must have patched up their ways because she was in the michael bay produced uh, ninja turtles live action films not only that, but um, Shia LaBeouf and someone else uh, on set got... It might have been 
I'm not sure if it was a drunk driving accident, but it was it was a car accident, regardless. And um, he broke one of his hands and required really Ooh. extensive surgery. So that's why later in the film, when they're when they transport to Egypt, he's like wearing a cast, and they try to explain like he fell and hurt his hand as part of the transportation process, which is pretty clever as far as that thing goes. You know, they should have just done what they did with Bob Hoskins in the Super Mario Brothers movie <laughs> and just have what? have give him a long sleeve shirt to hide the oh, cast yeah, and yeah. then stick on the end of the cast a mold of his hand. Right. Um, I believe Bob Has- Hoskins, that happened near the end of the shoot, I think. But, yeah, you're right. Um, also, confounding problems with this film. Um, this script had to be written under a really tight deadline before the upcoming writer's strike. Uh, there was a, I mean, the, the Writers Guild of America, WGA, had a strike that went for... Most of the time, they threatened to go on strike. They work out a deal. It doesn't happen. But every once in a while, there's a big one. This one started on November 2007 and concluded on February 2008. This impacted uh, a lot of TV shows had short seasons because of this, notably like 24. I recall a friend of mine was bitching about that. Like, it oh, only had 12. Really a, yeah, only a 12-episode thing. Also, like um, other films that were impacted by this was like the, the Star Trek reboot, the first one. Oh, yeah. um, and, and so what that means is like, you can't rewrite the script on set, which happens quite often, uh, especially in these big-budget movies. You can have people improvise, that's fine, but you cannot have the writers on set punching up the dialogue. And um, Michael Bay, uh, I was reading around in interviews and online, one of them, he says, you know, the writers basically just had 10 days to do an outline. However, when I listened to the audio commentary, they talked to two of the three writers, Kurtzman and Orchie, and they mentioned that um, they had three months to write the screenplay. Michael Bay basically put him in a very nice hotel with, uh, oh. you know, a pretty unlimited budget and just locked him in there and said, you have to come out with this. You know, there's a drop-dead date. We have to hit this. Not only that, they had to hit the release date in the summer, but because of the writer's strike, that was increased pressure, right? Um, and so. I can tell you from experience, some of the best writing you will ever do is in a hotel room that you're not paying for on a deadline. That is true. There's nothing like a deadline to inspire the writing process. Yeah, to hear certainly. it wishing past. Uh huh. So, um, <laughs> so that being said, I don't think it's really fair to blame the the writers. I don't think the strike helped things. I mean, no. and and certainly a lot of reviews of films around this time. Oh, this has a bad script. It must be because of the strike. And it's like not necessarily, but as part of that uh, WGA strike uh i'm not a member of the wga maybe one day i can be god willing but it's always um, the dream isn't it but uh, they have good insurance from what i understand <laughs> among other things but uh as part of what um they negotiated with the strike is to is for writers to get a portion of um revenue for shows streaming online and for online series because back in 2007 2008 that was a pretty new thing but they could tell it was on the horizon and the studios were trying to say, oh, you don't need... There's not going to be that much revenue from online shows. Writers don't need a, a cut from that. And smartly, they put their foot down. I think the cut they got was pretty meager, but it's better than nothing at all. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, enough WGA uh, hoopla. I just think it's good for context of the film. When did you first see uh, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? Yesterday. 
Oh, okay. Like, so, I've um, seen bits and pieces, but the first time I saw the whole thing from beginning to end was yesterday. Yeah, um, are you familiar with Max Landis? I, I am familiar with him. I am not all that familiar with his work. I think I, I think I've, I've, I've spent more time seeing him be, uh, being interviewed for podcasts and webcasts than I have yeah, seen yeah. any of his work. Yeah, sure. Um, he <clears throat> occasionally he'll contribute to Trailers from Hell. This pretty good website where oh, I um, love that you site. know movie yeah movie directors do commentaries and trailers. And they did one for, he did one for Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. And you could tell he had like a two hour monologue in his head about this film. Because he, he thinks it's sort of like studio expensive filmmaking at its most batshit. <laughs> and um, this film is more ambitious than the first. I'll give it that. I don't really like it, but it the weirdness is somewhat appealing. In that sense, it reminds me of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Um I saw Transformers Revenge of the Fallen in theaters when it came out because I liked the first one and uh, this one got terrible reviews. Uh, the first one was pretty well reviewed. and um, But I, I sort of begrudgingly felt like I had to see it so I went to see it by myself as I, I do um, more often than I'd like to admit but whatever, it's a movie in a theater with popcorn and you couldn't get beer back then but you know, it's a fun time. Well, I mean, and, you could, you could I, sneak it in. Well, yeah, you could, yes, and I used to do that uh, quite a bit. You'd wear, like, a big uh, jacket with big pockets and just sneak in the bottles. The trick, though, when you're sneaking in beer in bottles is you place it carefully on the slanted floor and don't kick the bottle over because you can hear <laughs> a beer bottle go, dink, as it rolls down the floor. Um, never been thrown out because of it, but certainly have uh, smuggled a six-pack or two. You know what you do? Um, what you yeah. do is you yeah. take uh, you take a, a Coke bottle, like the kind you might be able to get out of a vending machine, fill that up with Guinness. There it you go. It looks like yeah. you're just bringing a Coke you bought at the theater into the theater. It's fantastic. The The best thing I've heard like that is um, quite some time ago. Remember maybe, I don't know, like six or five years ago, uh, Walt Disney, they're not Walt Disney, Disneyland had a measles outbreak. Or something oh, yes. at the park, right? So right after that, it happened to be when my wife and her friends uh, were going for like the what do you call it? Like the bridal party. I don't know the name of these things. Bachelorette party. Um, but that's it. Yeah, bachelorette party. Uh -huh. They decided to go to Disneyland. It happened to be right after the measles outbreak, so there's no lines, and it was pretty awesome. But uh, what? Uh, more to the point, they took a um, suntan lotion bottle washed it out repeatedly, and then filled it with rum. And then had that in their bag and would doctor, would jimmy up their uh, their drinks and dull whips and whatever else they were having. Oh, wow. Uh, but that, that made me quite jealous. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm trying to avoid talking about Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, but we should, we should really get to it. Um, yeah, anyway, when, when I saw this in the theater, um, I had more fun watching a little boy and his dad watching the film. And there's one point where um, something happens to Optimus Prime. We'll, we'll spoil it in due time, don't you worry. <laughs> and the kid, the little boy, turned to his dad and said, you know, teary-eyed, I don't like this movie, let's leave, let's go home. And that made me, I had to stifle my laughter. And I'm like, that's great. This is the, I'm watching a, a kid having his first, you know, uh, emotional experience in a movie theater where a character he cares about something terrible happens to him 
<laughs> and he's used to movies being, you know, candy. He's probably used to movies being these uh, cuddly candy corn uh, movies about, you know, little animals trying to find their family or something. Not that Transformers Revenge of the Fallen is a dark film, but I'm, I'm rambling. Let's, uh, so on a high level, Revenge of the Fallen is about... Uh, the Revenge um, of the Fallen. Of, yeah, the Revenge of the Fallen. The Fallen is the, as Joss Whedon might say, the big bad. The, the Emperor to Megatron's Darth Vader, although we didn't see him in the first film, so that doesn't... So yeah, what the hell is he getting revenge for? Which is a big, which is a big problem I have. I have with this movie the idea that Megatron is someone's lackey. Like, don't yeah, th- that seems like a betrayal of the character. Beyond, beyond as, as so much as the, so much as there is a character, it's like just the whole time. If if you're gonna have okay, if you're gonna have Starscream and above Starscream is Megatron, and then you're gonna have someone above Megatron, you better damn well have Megatron betray that person on top of him and take his place. Right, it's it's also strange when you have a name of a sequel, Revenge of So-and-So, or blah blah blah, Strikes Back, but it's a completely new character or new <laughs> presence that wasn't in the first film. However, I mean, you can point out, to counter that, uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, right? Khan was not in the first film, but he wasn't an episode of the TV show. He was an established <laughs> character. Right, right, it wasn't completely out of nowhere. Um I, I did some research, and uh, the Fallen is a character from some of the comics, but not an especially well-known character. Uh, it was not one from the cartoon, certainly. Yeah, it, it feels like one of the comics from much later on in the series, which regrettably, I think I think I only really read the first 50 issues. I know it goes beyond that. Um, yeah, that's probably right. I, I only saw you know pictures of what he looked like, and it, it's not um, completely unlike how he looks in the film. And um, I I will say, though, this movie has some interesting ideas. And, you know, in the first film, it's about a boy getting his car. In this film, it's about a boy going to college. Ostensibly, it's about a boy going to college. Ostensibly. um, There's a lot more physical shtick for Shia LaBeouf. Um, It doesn't really work. Uh, The plot is too... It feels like you have two or a whole trilogy of movies worth of plot crammed into one film. Oh, uh, yeah. And at the same time, like, I fell asleep watching this in the theater. Because I was like, I don't remember these scenes when I was watching this uh, a few <laughs> days ago for this. Because it just, all the action and all the stuff just gets exhausting. But I think it starts out okay. Like, I'm not, like at the very beginning, um, you, you have, like, a caveman times, very brief sequence, setting up the fallen. Not very well. But still, the idea that... I do like the Transformers conspiracy theory angle that they have been to Earth before and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's it's not it's not bad world building. Although the, although at the same time it also feels like, oh, you're you're trying to do a 2001 moment, aren't you? Yeah, and it's also too brief. Like we don't care about these cave people or, or whatever it is. So like when they see the the fallen guy reaching towards them with his you know vampire looking teeth it's not really scary it's just like what okay i guess that's a bad guy eh? <laughs> <laughs> well the, the, well that's the thing though because because we see a bunch of different like ancient transformers in the scene they all look like bad guys <laughs> even though right. yeah yeah one good of point. Them is evil. right and so w- with no context 
And you do have some narration at the beginning, but it's quite light. Yeah. It... And then we, we get sort of like the James Bond films have like a self-contained action sequence to start things off in Shanghai. Um, and we also at the same time are introduced to a lot of different Transformers. A lot, yeah. Too many in my book. Um, but like they look... Some of them, I think, look pretty cool, and I mean, the it's difficult to fault, like, the, the special effects and the explosions and stuff are, are, are pretty good in this movie. Like, the compositing doesn't look bad. Um, on the other hand, it's, like, kind of sensory overload. It's all these characters, the, the cutting, because it's Michael Bay, is really quick and fast-paced, and you're not quite sure, like, what's happening or why, or, um, you know, they're investigating a uh, supposed Decepticon presence. And uh, it's the army doing it with the Transformers, which I sort of question. It's like, well, but a Transformer can take more damage than a man and can cause more damage than a man. Like, why have people there at all assisting the Transformers? Yeah, well, it's also, it's it's ridiculously complicated. Like, when, when even when, like, Optimus Prime gets his big heroic introduction, he's he's a truck, and he drives out of the back of a plane, turns into a robot uses par- branded parachutes to land, and then immediately turns back into a truck and drives away. It's like, well, what was that plane for? It, it's all, like, in the mission of looking cool, but even then, like, yeah, I mean, that's quite silly. I, I think, like, him with the branded parachute, I think that's a callback to that one of the Roger Moore James Bond films. Oh, where he where has the, the Union Jack? The um, Union Jack, yeah. And he says, yeah. like, he says, for the Queen or something as he, he jumps out. and. Yeah. But, I mean, in that case, that's, you know, a, a character moment and uh, a cool kind of button to a scene. This happens with Optimus parachuting out of a plane, which I can't believe I'm saying that sentence. So dumb. Uh, it happens in the middle of an already busy action sequence, and it's trying to be a hero moment. But the camera's too busy, like, wiggling and spinning around every single character. Well, and then beyond that, it's... it's So this this whole fight scene where the Autobots, the ostensibly the good guys, are trying to eliminate these Decepticons, they seem to be doing it intentionally to maximize the collateral damage. Right. It's... Yeah, I mean, they, they don't do a clean job of it. Um, among the other Transformers we see in this are... Why no Ironhide's there? Ironhide, who's in the first film, um, but I was going to point out, you have um, Wheelie and... Not Wheelie, wait, what is it? Skids oh. and Mudflap Skids or something? Skids and Mudflap, the two most controversial characters in this film. Full of the controversial original names were Step and Fetch It, is what I heard. Um, God. Yeah, why don't you talk about that? Oh, okay, yeah, so so there are these these two two characters, the, the ostensible Autobot brothers. Their, their names are Skids and Mudflap, which, hey, Skids is a cool name for a Transformer. How do you get stuck with the name Mudflap? Uh, especially given that at no point do they turn into a vehicle that has a mud flap, but I mean, es- essentially, they're two—they're two doofy transformers with gold teeth who speak in this really okay. They speak the way dumb white people who aren't funny think that black people black speak. people, yeah, right. 
And it's just, and, and, and that's just compounded with the fact that I'm pretty sure all their dialogue is improvised. Like, I really feel like their only direction they got it was, hey, voice actors, say something that sounds black. And it's, it just, and, and some of their slang doesn't even make any sense. Like when they call somebody a shrimp taco, what the fuck is that? The only but, thing I like about them is initially, like, they, they two form together to form, at the beginning, one vehicle, an ice cream truck. And I'm like, an ice cream truck transformer, like that, at least visually, that's different. Well, that's a, really, that's that's a really and neat that's, idea. Right. Unfortunately, after the opening scene, they each get their own car that looks like some, like, you know, neon green whatever sports car. Like a Mini that Cooper sort like, of thing. Right, like two Mini Coops. And that makes me very not interested. It's like, okay, more product placement. And they don't at combi- least. And they don't combine anymore after that. Like I feel no. like I feel like that would have been that would have been so much cool because the Decepticons we discovered later on they have a combiner. It would have been the characters. I, I guess wouldn't necessarily have been good, but might have been somewhat forgivable if at the end of the movie they combine. We've seen them combine into a vehicle. If they combine into one robot, and it was a pretty cool robot that they combined into. But what if they combined into a weapon that Prime uses at the end? Or, or something, yeah. yeah. And it's, but beyond, beyond that, they are the apotheosis of hideous Transformers character design. Right. Um, should be mentioned, Frank Wilker, who voiced Megatron in the cartoon, in this one they gave him some work. He voices Soundwave, who in this film is a satellite, and yep. Devastator, so, sort of the big, uh, you know, huge-ass Decepticon at the end. And he does some noises made by Reedman, who I think is a pretty neat uh, Decepticon made of nanobots that's, like, really thin. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was one of the, the, the more interesting visual uh, visual elements. Mm-hmm. Although Where I'm not entirely the... sure why he needs to be thin, because it never helps uh, him hide. Sure, yeah, it's just to make, uh, just so it looks cool. Um, right, so you have this big, big action sequence, and... Uh, Meanwhile, what do you think about the sort of conflict between the Autobots and the military? And then there's this government stooge that's on the scene who wants to, the Autobots to go back to their to leave Earth. He's like, well, if you guys got rid of the Decepticons the first time, why are they still here? Well, this, this is something that, that, that really bothers me because the, the, the government oversight guy who, who shows up, so so this movie so the first movie came out during the Bush years. This movie came out in the early Obama years. And this character mm, seems to right. exist to to mock a lot of perceptions people had <clears throat> about the Obama White House. That it was going to be more diplomatic, <clears throat> that use of military was, force was going so, to be more yeah. uh, more restrained. Uh-huh. And so what they do is to, to sort of to, to to they mock the idea of diplomacy by having this like weaselly sappy government guy there to sort of question everything that the military and intelligence people are doing um which i guess this is the this is the problem i have they set him up to be this this weasley guy that you're going to be happy when he's humiliated at some point later in the film but he all all he makes are good well-reasoned points i agree yeah this program, <laughs> the, they clearly can't get rid of the Decepticons, and maybe things would be better if these aliens, who are only destructive, are all <laughs> gently removed from the planet. Right, I mean, you mentioned all the collateral damage in Shanghai, 
you know, that's taxpayer money you're probably paying for those uh, reparations for well, that's uh, a whole this, the side thing. piece damaged well, by the Autobots. That's a whole crazy thing in this movie of like of like just the, the government bankrolling stuff. Because we, fi- we find out that like the, the Witwicky family gets money from the government and then the government's going to pay to repair their house after there's a crazy Transformer incursion. And that ostensibly... This is I, this isn't outright stated, but it seems to be the the subtext. That's the, my wife and I had discussed this while watching the film. So it's explained that Sam is the first Witwicky to go to college, and yet their family lives in a huge fucking house, and we never learn what the hell it is his parents do for a living, and they can afford to send him to what looks like Harvard. So right. apparently, this is all being bankrolled by the government, I guess, but I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> Are you implying that his great-great-grandpa, Archibald Witwicky, committed IRS fraud so that all his, um, you know, all, all his children and great-great-great-grandchildren get, uh, get a nest egg from the federal government and they're, in essence, uh, trust fund babies by way of the federal government? Maybe, I guess. I mean, okay. it's, it's just like, I there's... There's, that's the only explanation for where for where the money comes from because his parents aren't retired, uh, but, but there's no indication of where the money is coming from. Did and I realize, say, but a movie yeah, like I guess they're not retired. But I don't do ever say what setting work that his up. parents it's do. Just, college is so goddamn expensive. <laughs> I want to know how it's being paid for, or else it's a fantasy. I'll get right to work on that um, on a on a video game Transformers economic simulator, <laughs> where you have to balance the books after Transformers wreck a city. Also, um, something else I've noticed, and this this happens uh, this happens more and more in each of these films, but I really noticed it in this one, where the Transformers are constantly pulling guns on the people that they're working with. Right. Um, and we just see that more in the later films as well. It's, I, you know, may, maybe I'm viewing this from a different context because of all the, uh, God, all, all the school shootings, all the police, um, you know, shooting of civilians and stuff happening. But like, I, I don't think drawing a gun on someone's funny. And if you're doing it, you better damn well have a good reason for it. Well, yeah, and, I, and, I, and this is a silly movie about robots. I get that. But. Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just seems it seems like out of character and weirdly threatening for like a good guy to do. Yeah, and it's and that's and that's a pardon me for the with the throat clearing. I'm getting over cold, sure. but but and and I I say this as someone who is a user of of firearms for for hunting purposes. This movie takes irresponsible use of firearms to a whole new level. <laughs> well, I mean. And, it, it says something about how complicated this plot that we've been talking for almost 30 minutes at this point with a lot of tangents, mind you. But, like, we're not even, like, 15 minutes into the film. Oh, so, God, yeah. It's like there, there really are, like, multiple... There's multiple movies worth of ideas in this film, none of which ever get explored. Right. So, I mean, what you get after this sort of more traditional action scene in the beginning in Shanghai, we get another thing going on where it turns out, you know, there's all the business at the end of the first Transformers film with the Allspark, a little tiny shard uh, of it fell off somehow in the battle, and um, it's been kind of weirding out uh, Shia LaBeouf's character. 
uh, yeah, Sam. They, they thought there was only one shard, which is held in the government laboratory, but apparently That's right. Shia yeah. LaBeouf had it stuck to his clothes from the incident. And this is two years later, and he's only just now noticing that it's there. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have wrecked his laundry machine. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I, and yeah. like he touches it, he sees these flashing images, but then it activates and releases this energy wave that turns every appliance in the house into a, a transformer, which I got to point this out. Every time we see a transformer get created in one of these movies, they are inherently destructive. All they do is blow shit up like they're gremlins or something. Yeah, um, I kind of like this scene, though. You know, it's. It's really well, funny. Fun mayhem and the stakes yeah. of the destruction are pretty low, so you can laugh at the slapstick. But <laughs> right. and they're tiny. When a giant robot does slapstick, all I can think about is, oh, they're going to get someone killed. In this scene, at least, it's with Sam in his house. You know, it's a location and characters that we know, and so it's better than say the the jokey scene in the first film, where the Xbox came to life and the Mountain Dew machine came to life, yeah. right? Where it's these sort of piecemeal gag jokes. Uh, so, I mean, all this stuff, but as we were, were hinting at earlier, a, a big part of the plot is Sam goes to college. And so, uh, instead of, in something I think that's sort of a reference to Revenge of the Nerds, perhaps, he has, you know, his family drops him off at college and there's all these all the, the all the cliches, well, right? Well, the, the college is crying. populated by only two kinds of students: uh, ripped, nerdy guys uh, and yeah. supermodels. That's right. And um, I actually think the actress that plays the uh, evil Decepticon disguised as a sexy Australian co-ed <laughs> has more chemistry with Shia LaBeouf than Megan Fox does. You know, she, she does. And and that's a big... That's a and she's really... quite fun. I think she's like Alice, uh, Isabel Lucas, who's playing Alice. No, no, she 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 absolutely does. Like, I... I it, to, to, the, to the point where I wouldn't mind seeing seeing the roles reversed. Make, make her right. the yeah. love interest. Or, and hey, I think why, like... Why not have a human Transformer love thing go on? Why the hell not? Sure. I mean, I know she's a villain, it, but th- there would that would be something. And I found there is something like uh, perverse and sexy at the same time, where she has a robot tail coming out that's trying to strangle him as he's trying to like shut the door <laughs> and not get caught by Megan Fox when she comes to visit him. Like, I think a... that was sort of that was a pretty fun sequence, and it, like Megan Fox doesn't get a whole lot to do in the film. And at first, it's like, oh, did they write her out of the picture? And like, no, she eventually shows up on the scene but it's um which okay so this is a this is another problem so the government's yeah. bankrolling all this stuff for the witwickies but she was part of all the incidents in the first film why aren't they bankrolling stuff for her she's like working in a body shop trying to earn money to get her father out of jail or something like that yeah and uh, on the commentary the screenwriters mentioned um there originally was like some character scenes between her and her father but they had to cut it out because well <laughs> they didn't want like a 4 hour long movie also, with her character's introduction, she's doing airbrush art on a motorcycle that she's straddling sexily. As somebody who has done a little bit of airbrushing, you have to be able to see what you're airbrushing. Right. And there's Megan no Fox way in hell she can see what she's doing from where she saw that bike. Well, she was complaining that, you know, she's doing dialogue on the scene. She thought the camera would be focused on her face. Instead, they're... Michael Bay had several cameras focused on her tracking shots up her ass and whatever. And it's like, on the other hand, like it's Michael Bay. Like that's, he always 
He really she wants to remind young, you sexy that the women, women in movies have butts. Uh, he's a yeah. He's clearly a butt man, uh, a buttman. Also, <laughs> um, uh, famously, Megan Fox as her audition tape for Bad Boys Two filmed herself sexily washing a car when she was a teenager. And she got a part in Bad Boys 2, but she's just a background dancer because they couldn't have her do nudity because she wasn't 18. Hmm. And that's the start of her Michael Bay connection, so make of that what you will. Um, I admire the female <clears throat> form quite a bit, but I think that's pretty skeezy. Well, like, and if I that, if that happened thing... nowadays, like, he would, like... Uh, You'd be hearing a lot more about that in the news. <laughs> well, you well certainly in in entertainment news and criticism, but like mm-hmm. beyond beyond that, don't like don't make your audience bored with it. <laughs> yeah, like right. there are so many butts in this movie, the butts get boring, and you don't want to do that to butts. The butts get boring. The bots get boring. <laughs> butts and bots. That's our the new podcast and... <laughs> where we only talk about movies that feature butts and bots and bots and bots sometimes. Look at that okay. ass. Yeah, he must so, work out. One thing that I like, but also don't don't like, is I I like that. Uh, so, well, let's just get this off off the off the ground. All the college stuff is ridiculously unrealistic. The dorm size is huge. That's that's bigger than uh, the nine hundred dollar a month apartment they, I've lived in for seven years. They look like they're living in the guest house of a mansion. Uh huh. But but so one thing that like so so Shia LaBeouf his, his his roommate who like wants to like make money in like a dot com boom with kitten calendars and conspiracy websites yeah it's this whole thing where he runs a conspiracy website with Transformers information and this this is the thing that that I find really hard to believe the idea okay. that anything from the first movie could have been covered up and oh anything right since yeah that's a good then, point could have been covered up because way too much stuff is happening out in the open cell phone cameras were definitely a thing at that point like it, if, if this had happened 10 years before okay i could buy that maybe these incidents could be covered up but way too much shit happened in public in a densely populated area like everyone would have to know that there are tr- alien robots out there Right. I mean, why not play into that angle? Why not have the Autobots do a uh, do a no, statement do a statement on the still... news apologizing for the havoc they've caused? I don't know, but you're right. Like they're trying to be like, oh, the I mean, because not I mean, the initial you know sort of Transformers fight scene in the first film, as I recall, was in a, a parking garage. But like at the end, it's in broad daylight in the middle of a crowded city, and in Xboxes Vegas? are attacking people. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So odd. So, so yeah, it's, it's some it's something that really really strains uh, credulity. And the thing is, you could still have them running some sort of transformer information website. But yeah, like the yeah, it's it's it just. And also, how are they going to make money with this website exactly? They don't seem to have a lot of ads on it. Uh, yeah, it's. Yeah. It's weird. But a bunch of a bunch of bad college stick happens, including a scene where you have uh, Sam in Astronomy 101, which I so as someone who tried to get into Astronomy 101 really? back in my college days, you could that couldn't be one of your first classes. You had to have a foundational math class, I believe, a foundational math class or a foundational math credit from an AP math cl- uh, math course from high school to get into that. Which, Did I mean, Scad have an astronomy has, like, course? 
What? Did SCAD have an astronomy course? Yes, it, it had. They only really? taught it like once a year, and everyone huh. wanted to get into it. Uh, I, I had no idea. I attended okay. one session of it before I was before I was moved to a different science class due to overcrowding. That's too bad. Um, yeah, it really was. It, 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 I mean, it, it was it was the class to be in, and the guy who taught it uh, was an intern at NASA during the Apollo uh, days, which is pretty cool. Ooh. But so yeah, so a bunch of college shtick happens. Uh, and in this astronomy class, it's taught by um, uh, Rain, Rain Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, who just and, who just plays up? It's such a like perv. Well, there's an explanation for that on the commentary. I feel like a broken record here. Uh, Michael Bay mentioned he had a teacher that was just like that when he went to college um, in the 90s, went to film school, and the teacher wore hot leather pants and was flirting Uh with the female teachers every step of the way. And he also expressed regret, saying, Ryan Wilson's a pretty funny guy. We should have given him funny things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, yeah, of course. Like, it's it's a very brief scene, and you have... um, I don't like all the business in this movie of Sam Witwicky freaking out and drawing hieroglyphs. Well, especially when those hieroglyphs don't really come to anything. They're just an indicator of weirdness going on in his brain. I mean, they eventually translate it and it's some sort of a message, right? But Sort of. But it takes a long time for that to happen, and they run this gag into the ground again and again and again. I mean, not only in the scene... Does he go up and uh, do it on the chalkboard? But in his dorm, he paints it all over the place. He He's at a party, and he uses the... Uh, the frosting um, on the cake. Yeah, the frosting on the cake to do it. Like, you could have done it once. You don't need to do it three times. I mean, it's not like in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the guy made mountains out of everything. He just did it on mashed potatoes, right? Yeah. Well, no, well he did mashed potatoes, but he also, like, rebuilt... Like, he took, got, like, a hobby train terrain and rebuilt that into a replica of the mountain as well. Okay, and that's like, a bad example. I haven't seen that film in 20 years. But like, I mean, the, if I remember correctly, it's like yeah. a rule of threes thing. Like, it happens three times, because I believe he draws ah, it as well. But okay. they're, they're, it's much more subtle and weird. They're not hitting the audience. It's just, oh, this is a weird thing this character is doing. They're not Well, it, 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 it has a real head payoff head. in the story, too, at the end, when they go to oh, yeah. Devil's Canyon or whatever the hell it's called. Um <clears throat> But then there's also so a scene yeah. that I find really disturbing is when so Bumblebee follows him to college, because so there's there's apparently a rule that a freshman can't have a car on campus, which I guess a college could have that, although I'm not entirely sure why. Then um, also, well, like, how, would you how, how can you prove that? it? I mean, do you do you like brand freshman's car? Do you brand freshman's? Do you have a special sticker on the car? I, yeah, like all you have to do is use a public parking space that's not like on campus. But anyway, yeah. But there's a scene where he 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 and the 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 female transformer that's in disguise, where like they're driving around in Bumblebee, and Bumblebee keeps trying to sabotage any attempts at romance. At first, by changing the radio, which is kind of funny, but yeah. then like it like he starts fucking with her, and like the thing that I find really <laughs> disturbing is when just a console opens up and just sprays her with green goo. Like what 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 is that? I think they're going for like a premature ejaculation joke. I guess so, but it's like it's really gross. Like to, it's really gross, but it's also like, well, she can't be human because a human would be very disturbed by this. I mean, she does get out of the car and walk away, but it it, it doesn't. I mean, I enjoy that um, that character of Alice, 
However, like, she's, like, crazy. You can tell she's crazy right off the bat. Yeah, it might have been better to have no, a like, slow burn. Yeah, like, a bit of a slow burn. You know, it's sort of the same problem, and I do like this film, but in The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, you put Jack Nicholson in that kind of a role, like, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, you know, he's he's always intense and kind of weird anyway, so, it, yeah, it, but... um. Right. But yeah, and then there's some stick with his parents on a pot brownie. Uh and mm, yeah. But I guess I guess we sh- I guess we should skip skip to the the action. So yeah, the 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 sexy lady transformer corners Shia LaBeouf in a room and tries to like dissect him with a tail penis. Uh and then Megan Fox shows up and then there's a chase and an escape and lots of property damage and Bumblebee is there. <laughs> and then later Shia LaBeouf gets can't gets captured. And they tried to, other robots try to dissect them. Yeah, there's like this little roach robot that uh, that gets into his brain and they discover that like the the shard from the Allspark has put something in his brain. And Megatron Which is a is cool there. idea. Like, that's sort of interesting. Well, but... the funny thing is that's actually right out of the comic. The is it? First... Okay, so what happened in the comic? So the first story arc of the comic uh, had to do uh, with the 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 matrix the autobot matrix and the the short the short version is that sam got a hold of the matrix and it did something to him and the matrix stopped working and the matrix essentially put itself into his head and so like he hmm. would like write stuff down that would turn out to be a transformer language and he would like instinctively he would start okay. assembling electronic parts into functioning machines and it got huh. to the point where, like, he could sort of telekinetically assemble a Transformer. And the Autobots eventually had to get it out of his head and put it back into the Matrix before it killed him. Well, that's far more interesting than the story in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, yeah, which, which, which turns, we find out that there is an Autobot Matrix of Leadership, which is actually a key... Now, keep in mind, this information we don't find out until very late in the film, but, like... And the it's, Matrix of Leadership, it should be noted, was uh, a big thing in the animated Transformers movie from 1986. Yes, yes. And uh, and so what it is in this movie is that it's a key that starts up a machine that can harvest a sun to make Energon. And it turns out that millions of years ago, the tr- tr- uh, group of ancient Transformers were scouring the universe for suns they could harvest. But they had a rule, you don't harvest a sun from a solar system that has life. But the Fallen came to Earth, which had life, mm. and set up the Sun Harvester and was going to destroy the Earth. But they defeated the Fallen, uh, banished, the, the original banished him, but didn't kill him, but then turned themselves into a tomb to hide the Matrix of Leadership so the machine couldn't be activated. But why not dismantle the machine? I really find it difficult to follow the Prime's logic with, with this. And as you mentioned... The uh, the explanation and the motivations are so late and or too late in the film, I'd argue. Um, you, you want to kind of go on a journey of discovery with the characters, and instead you're given this big info dump near the end. And well, beyond that though, it doesn't even like it's it's the it doesn't there's the, it's not consistent. There's no verisimilitude because when so towards the end, we'll we'll go back and fill in the gaps. But at the end, this really bothers me. So at the end. Um, Shia LaBeouf finds the Matrix of Leadership, and the moment he touches it, uh, it just turns into into silver dust. But he scoops all that dust up, puts it in a sock, because 
So uh, he believes it will bring a certain character back to life. He just believes it will. There's no reason to be- there's there's no information mm. to suggest that. But li- but then he has a near death experience where he meets the primes who sacrifice themselves to imprison to seal away the matrix, and they so say stupid. that oh the matrix can't be given or taken. It can only be earned, and you have shown that you have a good heart and whatnot. So the dust reassembles itself into the matrix. But then, like, a scene later, Megatron just takes it from him. So it can be stolen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the scene of him, like, talking to the Primes in Autobot Heaven or whatever is just <laughs> aggravating. And slows the pace down. And, yeah, but let, let's, let's, let's fill in the gaps a bit. Um, but one thing I, I do like is you get a little bit of the Starscream Megatron dynamic when Megatron goes back. To where the fallen is, who just looks like an old robot dude sitting on a lazy boy. Yeah, well, hooked up to ostensibly life support, but yeah, they're in this Decepticon facility that's apparently on one of Jupiter's moons. Uh, and this is okay. So this is something that I feel is way too grim. So they have these like gestation pods that have like yes, Decepticons yes. in them, but they don't have enough energon to power the pods. So the Decepticons are effectively stillborn, and we see this several times <laughs> in this scene. Right. That is way too grim for this movie. It also looks just like in the Matrix when the humans are in the pods, right? Like, it it reminded me very much of that. Uh, And also, if you're trying to establish the Fallen as the the supreme leader, having him, like, old and wheezy and, you know, hooked up to a couch, basically, like, doesn't make him that intimidating. You'd You'd think Starscream would have killed him and taken his place while Megatron was away. Right, and I, I do like you get far too little dialogue of Starscream bitching at Megatron and Megatron punching Starscream, which at least is something from the cartoon, and that was always an enjoyable dynamic. I could have used more of that. And you, yeah, they, they, we don't even mention we didn't even mention they bring Megatron back up from the Marianas Trench. Oh yeah, this is the this is one so much thing, shit in this movie. This We're is get halfway through. <laughs> that I kind of liked is is with the Megatron resurrection scene. So a bunch of Transformers, you know, they. They crash into a battleship, destroying it, and an almost pornographic level of destruction in that scene. Uh, but they go to the bottom of the trench to to revive Megatron. So already, well, I guess that sea pressure doesn't affect Transformers in any way. But the one thing I really liked is when they're talking about how they're going to have to repair Megatron. The the sort of the Doctor Decepticon says, "We will need parts. Destroy the small one," and they just mm-hmm. rip apart one of their own lackeys to get parts to fix Megatron. Yeah, it's it's like, a nice that's scene. A great I, that scene could have gone that on for longer. Evil. Right. Uh, also, um, there's so much stuff that happens in the film. Later, they're they're running around. They um, they, they go into they they track down Seymour, played by jo- the great John Turturro. Who's and working? It, who's working in a, in a, a <laughs> deli diner place, which is just a cover for his own like Transformers monitoring operation. And I love I, I love his monitoring operation with like all the the crazy stuff pointed to the walls and uh, yeah John Turturro again is great and just gives the film an energy that a bunch of the other actors don't. I wish um, he had his own movie. I I would yeah there, yeah there doesn't even have to be Transformers involved. I would love to see his secret agent character just out in the wild <laughs> trying to solve mysteries. Oh, I like how. But, jittery he is so this is another thing that, that really bothers me so so his diner that's on the ground floor right uh yeah 
Sure, it's New so, York, so yeah. So his secret info lair, they go into the diner's freezer, which has a hatch with a ladder that goes into a lower level. The lower level has windows. And sunlight comes in through those windows. In what is ostensibly well, a subterranean yeah. room. Michael Bay likes... I don't know if you've noticed this, Thrasher. Michael Bay likes to fill his frames with light. A yes, lot of yes, yellow, warm light. So he needed that in the scene. Physics and science and logic be damned. He got his shafts of light. Yeah, but but yeah, he reveals that the Transformers have been on the Earth for a while, and he has all these pictures of like old vehicles that uh, were that like apparently were Transformers. Uh, and there's a so, yeah, no, this oh, is yeah. great. All the there, photos. Wheelie, voiced by the immortal Tom Kenny, who turns into a remote control truck, has been captured yes. by Megan Fox. Uh, and he recognizes Shia LaBeouf's right. scribblings as this ancient Transformers language <laughs> and identifies this uh, Blackbird jet as a prime that could translate the writings. And, and it's in it's in the air and so the geography in this movie, it's like it's supposed to be in the air and space museum. So they br- they use comedy to break into the air and space museum, which is in Washington. But then. They go out Have of the Air and Space Museum, and there's a hangar, and then there's also a desert there in the middle of Washington, D.C. No. Don't they teleport? No, they teleport to Egypt. After. after uh, oh, that. sure. Because remember, there's like there's just this empty field full of decommissioned jets. You're right, you're right. Connected That's right. to the Air and Space Museum in Washington. But, yeah, so, yeah, so let's so, for our listeners, let's talk about, uh, have you been to the Air and Space Museum? Many times, I love it. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's a great museum. But to give you an idea of the geography, there's a part of Washington, D.C. called the Mall that has all sorts of free museums, one of which is the Air and Space Museum. And around it is like a lot of other museums. There's no field. There's no... There's no giant hangar. No, no giant hangar. There's there's like monuments and and stuff and... uh, Lots usually of people, people. Lots of people. Usually some sort of oh. protest going on. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's geography is ludicrous. Not to mention the Smithsonian, I would hope, has quite good security. I don't know that for a fact, but I would assume that it's in the, the nation's, the United States capital. Well, that if think... someone tried to break in, alarms would go, like, you know, they'd, they'd probably have night guardsmen or something well the other thing is though the museum is closing but it's like the middle of the day right yeah i mean it's not open till late at night or anything but it's open probably till 5 p.m yeah which is the same because they really do like it would have been an awesome set piece to have the conversation with jet fire happen in this museum which is a real place but they 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 work as hard as they can to get them out of the museum proper as quickly as possible so i I, okay, I've got to say this. So they find the Blackbird. They use the shard of the AllSpark to, to reactivate him. I really liked Jetfire, voiced by Mark Ryan. Yeah, he he's uh, an old codger. He he complains a lot. I, I like that he has basically a cane that he walks around with. That's very <laughs> endearing. He has a robot beard. 
Well, I think there is something really charming about this this piece of outdated technology that is also an old man as a Transformer. And then he... I like this joke, but it makes no sense where he talks about, you know, my father, he was he was one of the first Transformers. Uh, he was a wheel. And you know what he turned into? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, it's pretty Which, good. But he did so with dignity and honor. Like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So he's just a wheel? He's not a robot? Wouldn't it be he transformed into a wheel? But I guess that's the other thing. Lots of Transformers refer to, quote-unquote, their father in this movie. They never explain what the hell that means because we learned in the first movie that they're not they're not born, they're given life by the AllSpark, except apparently they're also made by gestation machines. <laughs> as we learn in this one. Sure. It's, um, I mean, man, I mean, this movie is so dense and like, we're not even like, I think we're just at the halfway point. But yeah, but yeah, in the middle of all this, he semi-arbitrarily teleports everyone to Egypt via space bridge, which is a nice nod to the old Transformers continuity. Um, yep. And they're, um, they're in Egypt, and they actually let them film near the pyramids for some of this stuff, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And there's... Oh, can we talk about my favorite cameo in this film? Uh, sure. It's not it? Rain Wilson, as much like Rain Wilson. It's Deep Roy. Ah, yes, the guard. S- yeah, seeing Deep Roy not slathered in makeup, I I really... I love Deep Roy. He's... Uh, if, any, if anyone's uh, never seen him, he's from... I believe he's from India... And he is, he's a little person, and he's been in everything. He played the Oompa Loompas in uh, the Willy Wonka remake. Uh, He was, uh, he, there's a great episode of the X-Files where he plays a fakir who can crawl into people's bodies and take them over. Oh, Um, yeah. Um, He's he's in Alien from L.A. with Kathy Island. uh, In, um, when he was younger, he is in the, uh, the Dr. Doolittle film with Rex Harrison. Oh, that's right. He's also in. Uh, he's also in an episode of Blake Seven. Yes, he's had, he's had this. And and, and he was in. Um, he has a few episodes in season two of Eastbound and Down. Oh, that's right. As like a cockfighting uh, <laughs> ringleader in uh, Mexico. But he's had a fascinating career. He has he has great comedic chops. He has an amazing voice. He can't he can act. It's not just about his stature. Uh, and it's just it's great just to see it's great to see him, even if it is for comedic effect, like playing a person with a position of authority. And I just love him as this commander of this border checkpoint, who like John Turturro just starts talking about New York, and he really gets in, and he really gets into it and lets them pass. And yeah, I, I like that it's not like a, a quasi racist joke either. Like what we had in the first film when the military was calling customer support and the Indian goes like, hello, how can I help you today? Hello. Oh, right. God, I forgot about that. Yeah. And, and this like he just Deep Roy gets to play just a regular character. And it's nice. Quite possibly the most human character in this film. Correct. Yeah. Oh, and so meanwhile, Sam's parents are vacationing in Paris so they can afford a huge house to send him to college and a trip to Paris, which I guess the government's paying for. Uh, and they get kidnapped by Decepticons. So this movie is so frenetically paced and so disjointed. When they showed up in Egypt, I forgot that they had been kidnapped. 
I had to, my, my wife had to explain to me what I had just watched because the scenes are so disjointed. It's just so not needed. Like, yeah, the Decepticons, of course, are going to go after Sam and Witwicky because they, they, they figure out, that's why they were trying to dissect him in some of the earlier scenes to get the um, Allspark, you know, essence or whatever out of his body, out of his brain. And that's enough of a threat right there. Like, don't capture his parents. Like, who the hell cares? Like, it's just an added bit of business that's not needed in a movie that's already busy. Um, so, so uh, Sam and his crew, who Jetfire kind of abandons, sort of. They we go... skipped over the big... We skipped over Optimus getting killed. Oh, god damn, you're right, yeah. <laughs> there's a fight. God. It's, yeah, I, a, I actually a, like this a... fight scene, because... Michael Bay shoots it with like wide shots where you can tell what's going on. It's in a forest. So you get some interesting visual stuff in the background, but they, they basically capture Sam and try to dissect him as a setup to get Optimus on the scene. And then they beat the shit out of Optimus and kill him. And it's a really good scene. I think. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's it's the first time that a character dying in, in one of these films seems to, it's like, matters and has any kind of emotional weight. And yet I can't help feeling, is some of that emotional weight just fallout from the emotional weight of Optimus Prime dying in the animated Transformers film from the 80s? It has to be, yeah. Certainly. Um, and, and it's weird they do that in the middle of the film. You think you'd do that near the end and then bring it back in the, in the next film or something? Yeah, and that's that is something that that does bother me because having having Prime die and resurrect in the same film, and the and the Matrix sticking around, well, that means deaths of Transformers aren't going to matter because you can just bring them back to life. I never even thought about that point, but you're right. Um, you like like heroes or villains, you'll just use the Matrix to bring them back, and so their death can't really have any real narrative weight to it. Um. It reminds me of when I was watching Suicide Squad with Havana, and she hadn't seen Batman vs. Superman, and I just told her, you know, nothing really of consequence happens in the movie. In the first five minutes of um, Suicide Squad, there's a newscast that mentions, with Superman being dead, and Havana turns <laughs> to me and goes, what? I'm like, oh yeah, that did happen, but otherwise, <laughs> nothing of importance <laughs> happened in Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. So, um, I'm sorry for interrupting, but uh, Optimus oh, dying right. was a big plot point. So, let, let's try to um this conversation is getting a bit long so so they go yeah. they, they go to egypt they think they found the sun harvester machine and then all these construction vehicles they're the constructicons and they turn themselves into devastator which the devastator design i gotta say is pretty damn cool it's monstrous yep. it's alien it uses all these construction machine parts however it takes so long and this is a this this is a really starts to gall on me after a while. It takes so long for Devastator to combine that I got to wonder, why don't you just attack him as he's combining? Why does everyone wait for him to turn into a monster? It, it's it's a bit of a money shot. Uh, they do a similar thing earlier in the film where Optimus is in the truck form. He's transferred into the robot form to talk to the NSA or something. And the, they do a very slow kind of revolving shot showing every little Optimus part transforming. Yeah, it's just Which too we've already seen when he was dropped into Shanghai. That's right. Uh, but, uh, job, job yeah, so there's the a bunch of stuff with Devastator, uh, Skids and Mudflap, uh, Fuck Em Up Good, 
Uh, Sam does get has his near-death experience and uses the reassembled Matrix to bring Optimus back to life. Then Megatron steals the Matrix to activate the Sun Harvester. Um, so during all so during all this, Jetfire shows back up again and you know says like, "Oh my my time is over." And you know he he gives his quote unquote parts to Optimus Prime. It's Optimus Prime gets an upgrade and can fly, which I got to admit is kind of cool. Although I don't buy the Jetfire needs to die to make this happen. Yeah, he looks almost like an anime character. He gets kind of wings. <clears throat> yeah, and it and, is uh, kind of cool to see him uh, flying. I got to give him that. Oh, so related to this, so when they find Jetfire before they bring him back to life, just as getting ready to power him up. Megan Fox realizes too late he has a Decepticon symbol on him, so he's a Decepticon. But immediately after he transforms, he reveals that he changed sides and anyone can do it. So why didn't he change his symbol? Why is there this false tension? Oh, and it's at that point that Wheelie decides to join the Autobots for some reason and immediately starts humping Megan Fox's leg. That's a painful moment. He doesn't have genitals. Why would he do that? I mean, beyond it supposedly being funny. It's just humor for the the kids. I don't know. It's tired. Yeah, so, so, you know, the Fallen is... But then the Fallen shows up, and the Fallen is defeated very quickly, I might add. Yeah, seems, almost too quick. It's like, really? This is what the last fight is? Well, I think it took them longer to to chase down and defeat that that big wheel Decepticon in Shanghai than it does to dispatch the Fallen. Right. Um, and, you know, for all the deal they made of resurrecting Megatron, they don't give him a whole lot to do in this movie. No, not not really. And then, but, you know, the day, the day is saved, Sam can go back to college, and we end with more ponderous, ponderous narration from Optimus Prime that means nothing. It could have been the same ending as the first film, the same monologue from the first film, and it would have worked just fine. Like, it's ridiculous. It's like, I just wasted three hours watching this film. (laughs) (laughs) Ugh. Yeah, I mean, (sighs) there's some interesting ideas here, and I think it it starts off okay, but you could, um, you know, cut 45 minutes out of this and it'd be a better movie, I think. Yeah, yeah, in fact I wouldn't I wouldn't mind seeing a really stripped down cut that that might make this and like don't I I feel like you would have to add some information to this movie to make it make more sense and have better narrative flow, but that would require filming new scenes. So maybe take out the scenes that make it confusing, that make me ask mm. these kinds of questions and keep it keep in mind half the reason I'm asking these questions is I kind of got bored during a lot of this movie. And if yeah. the movie's not giving me something to enjoy, I will just I will start picking it apart because there's just nothing else to do. Hmm. Oh yeah, also robot testicles. Uh, yeah, there's a line where John Turturro says, "Strike the robot testicles." Yeah, yeah, Devastator, like the wrecking balls from Devastator's constituent parts, turn into actual testicles. Uh on him. Uh. Robot testicles indeed. Um, so what do you give Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? I'm sequel yes it, or so, sequel no? So the, so the first film, as you know, I gave it a sequel no, but a very, very light sequel no, because I can under, I can understand why, I can understand 
be still being entertained by that movie despite its flaws. This movie is such a mess. I've got to give it a pretty firm sequel no. I also give it a sequel no. Uh, this is what a sequel should not be. It's chaotic. It's too busy. I mean, yes, yeah, sequels often expand on the scope of the original, which is fine. But this should have, at the very least, been split into two movies. And you have one where Optimus dies at the end, huh. and then you have his resurrection in the second one. Yeah, I can um, see that. The Fallen is not a very compelling bad guy. Uh, I, I like some of the Optimus stuff in, in here is kind of cool. Some of the college antics are, are sort of interesting, but it's just, uh, you know, all to, to quote Shakespeare, all sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm. We stared into the abyss and the abyss shot green robot goo into our eyes. The green robot goo tasted like the uh, Ninja Turtles pudding pies. If only. <laughs> I never had one. Vanilla. I remember the commercials, but I never tried one of the pudding pies. They they weren't bad. I mean, they it's were vanilla pudding, right? Colored green. Yeah, yeah. It was it was green vanilla pudding as mutagen goo. Uh, it, they they weren't bad. Now, I bet if I tried it now, I would be horrified by it because mm-hmm. it did have that waxy exterior that a lot of those kind of snack cakes get. But it had a lot of vanilla pudding in it, and I love vanilla pudding. Mm. The tapioca is my favorite. Really, you like that gushy texture? I love tapioca. There's just something. There's something about the flavor, and both the flavor and the texture. And I'm talking about both processed tapioca and tapioca that uses the full tapioca pearl. I love both of them. I like boba tea, but I don't like tapioca pudding. Oh, bubble tea, bubble tea, boba tea. That that is a nice treat. Especially, uh, I like the azuki flavor. Huh. Red bean. Um, cool. Uh, anyhow, pitch a sequel. Um, I had something to mind, Thrasher, for pitch a sequel for this oh, one. Right. So, so what I'm thinking is uh, you have this scene in Revenge of the Fallen where you look at the um, John Turturro's secret storehouse, right? With all the stuff in there. Yeah. And he, he talks about the history and I think you would, the way I would do it would be sort of like a, uh, a, a Tales from the Crypt style film, like an anthology film, like a creep show thing, where it's the wraparound story is John Turturro looking through his files, and you would do three short, three, maybe four 30 minute films huh. looking at Transformers in different time periods. And uh, based on John Turturro's research. Um, and I would do uh, World War One. I would do kind of a like a Victorian London like Jack the Ripper Transformer story. Um, I would do a a Vietnam Transformer story, and for the fourth one, why not? Let's do uh, something about uh, man landing on the moon. That the Transformers are somehow responsible for that happening, and the rocket they fly, the spaceship they fly, is actually a Transformer. Because that's the only way a rocket can successfully go to the moon. Man hmm. could not do that alone. They needed help from <clears throat> Transformers. Um, and I would call it uh, Transformers Stories. <laughs> that's terrible. I can't think of the title. John Turturro tough. presents Transformers yeah, Stories. John... Chronicles of the Transformers. <laughs> That's, yeah, just Transformers Chronicles. Fine. Yeah, that's good enough. 
Um, Thrasher, what's your pitch? Sequel? So, so I've got something similar. Taking advantage of the fact that Transformers have apparently been on Earth since the dawn of human civilization, uh, I want to do uh, Transformers uh, Age of Titans, where it's going to take place... Ooh, okay. uh, in the early, early days of ancient Greece, back when it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of uh, right. different city states in the Mediterranean, uh-huh. and it's going to be about a young, uh, about a young man. So there's a there's like an explosion near his you know simple uh, sheep farming village near Thebes, and he's going to find this crater. And in the crater is this massive transformer who he thinks is. Uh, is the is uh, Hephaestus the god of the forge? Or no, Hephaestus is no Vulcan is the the Roman name. It is Hephaestus in in Greek, uh, and and the reason he thinks that is that this uh, because the, this young man sort of shows that he has a good heart. Uh, this this very this wounded transformer gives him a weapon and warns him that there are there are these evil monsters, uh, these titans that he has to go out and defeat, and so this. Uh, this young man kind of goes on a quest defeating these Decepticons who all transform into different giant monsters that are evocative of monsters from ancient Greece. One has many heads and turns into a hydra. One turns into a giant boar-type monster. One turns into a, a Charybdis. And as as he fights them, he acquires he acquires more technology that give him better weapons and enhance his strength with like an exoskeleton. And he eventually saves ancient Greece by destroying all these Decepticons. And at the end of the film, we find out that this young man is the basis for the Hercules legends. That's really cool. And so that would be that would be mine. It would be this ancient Greek fantasy epic with Transformers, Transformers: Age of Titans. So would the young man be a Witwicky? <laughs> Um, maybe <laughs> as a joke, his, his last name in Greek would sound Wiktatopoulos. It would, would sound something vaguely okay. Greek, but that, you know, that, that being, but that being said, I guess that, that should be it is like, I don't want anyone to know that he's the basis of Hercules until the end, unless you're piecing shit together. I mean, the fact that it begins just outside of Thebes should be a dead giveaway. Very good. And you can have a lot of fun. Like, he can consult an oracle, and the oracle could be another Transformer that's been on Earth that has, like, all this data. Like, maybe it's based on Perceptor or something. I mean, you, you really could take advantage of both the mythology of ancient Greece and the lore of the Transformers. That'd be pretty cool. Um, all right, well, let's uh, move on to the next segment. Whatcha watching? Thrasher, what you watching? Well, I, I watched uh, two things. My wife and I kind of got on a let's watch a bunch of CGI uh, movies uh, the other weekend. So I watched two things back to back, and I really want to talk about them because they really contrast with each other. I'm going to start with the bad one. Uh, we watched a movie called uh, Deep, which is a movie. It's a movie about a bunch of undersea creatures who go on a magical adventure. And I wish that's all it was about, but it is so needlessly complicated and poorly written. It's not poorly animated. It's not like, you know, it's not like on that, that the Pixar level as far as the craft's concerned, but it's mm-hmm. not poorly animated. The character designs are strong. Uh, uh, they it's, it's animated well. A lot of care is taken with designing the backgrounds and whatnot. But it's just a bad story that... The, the writers and the animators seem to forget takes place mostly underwater. How is the water effects? 
completely absent. The characters just float. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, look, I'm looking at the poster. They're definitely going for a Finding Nemo thing with the font. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and ostensibly, and like the premise, also the background, way too complicated, is that like humans destroyed the surface of the earth and most of the oceans uh, and then vanished. And so the only survivors are these creatures that the Kraken gathered up a bunch of sea creatures and hid them away in a sea cave. And that's where they live to this day, kind of like one of the vaults in Fallout. And his grandson is this Dumbo octopus uh, called Deep, who's just a little asshole. He's just a little precocious asshole. And he's a little precocious asshole throughout the entire film, and he doesn't mature. He's the same asshole at the end of this movie as he is in the beginning, And but he's our protagonist, so we're stuck with him. And he, I, after yeah. stirring some shit up, he and his friends go on a quest to find the Krakens after a cave-in called, like, blocks the flow of water I, I, I'm not sure why the cave-in is a threat exactly since they're already in a sea cave but they, they go on a quest to find this whale who couldn't live in the sea cave uh, I guess because he can't breathe underwater although when the whale shows up he's only underwater and never breathes so I don't know why that's a problem but it gets so fucking complicated, and it turns out that humankind left the Earth on three giant spaceships, so humankind has the technology to settle another world, doesn't have the technology to fix the world it's on. Arc 1, and it's a Golga Frinchim situation, Arc 1 had all the people, Arc 2 had all the land animals, and Arc 3 was supposed to have all the sea creatures, uh, but it never took off, so it's in the Arctic, and there's some evil penguins and sea lions working on it and the the whale is in it and it's just it, again it's just needlessly complicated but here here's the big here's the big problem do you know what you can do underwater swim yes they fucking forget that there is a scene where there's like a valley of lava that they can't cross yes they can they can swim over it <laughs> there are multiple problems that they get into where swimming up or down would solve the problem, and they never do that. Also, and this pissed me off, so on the spaceship, they have these, like, cryogenic ice guns. Do you know what ice does in water? Floats. Not in this movie. Oh. Everything that gets frozen sinks. And what was the, um, I'm looking at the cast, you know, it's a real shame that you have such great voice actors like Jess yeah. Harnell and Phil Lamar and Bob Bergen, uh, and that they get to be, you know, uh, big parts in a basically direct-to-video cartoon like this, but then they don't really get big parts in, um, you know, like the Pixar, or the Disney, uh, DreamWorks animated stuff. I mean, it's a shame, because, like, the animation's good, the cast is great, the only thing wrong with this movie is the story and the world building. But it's so glaring how bad they are. What's the other thing that you saw? Oh, the other thing, which I thought I was going to hate, but I found myself charmed with it, was Sing. Ah, yeah, we mentioned that last week. By um, the director of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I like with Sing, they have a pretty wide library of music they... They sing. I mean, yeah. the, the title I mean, of it is bad. I sing. mean, it's all like 
prepackaged pop songs. Yes. But there's such variety, and they they don't use for the most part they don't use the big hits. They use the more obscure music that is maybe because of its obscurity a bit more meaningful and a bit more special. Like the fact that the Gorillas' big number is "I'm Still Standing" by Elton John. That's yeah, one of my favorite the... Elton John songs, and it is criminally underplayed. Yeah, from the early 80s, it was on the album where he reunited with Bernie Toppin after um, going with a different lyricist for a little bit on a different label. Right. Um, also, I, I like, uh, speaking of the gorilla, I like he has a storyline where his father is a, a gangster and he's, you know, wants to get out of that world and do the singing, which is something he loves. And you have an interesting father-son sort of story going on. You have characters with real stuff going on uh, I, I liked seth mcfarlane as the mouse who did like frank sinatra standards yeah he does a he does a good job playing a, sh- a little asshole <laughs> yeah um who would have thought it, right it's the part he was born <laughs> but, to play yeah. and but i guess actually i actually like, i don't though, i'm not a fan of seth mcfarlane's writing or directing but i've really come around on his acting i like seeing him perform and his um he he's released like five albums. He just sings like old standards, and he's, he has yeah. a really good voice. He went to the same vocal coach that helped Frank Sinatra. Mm. Um, I think he even records the albums using the vintage microphones to get that sound. And oh, that's uh, that's really cool. Um, do you ever see Orville? I I have yet to see that. It's okay. something I keep meaning to check out, but I I have yet to see it. My advice is you can skip the pilot and like just pick any episode after the first few. Um, but okay. yeah, it's, I, I think you might enjoy it, but if you like Seth MacFarlane's acting, I'd be interested in what you think of his performance there where he's more of the straight man. Um, he may actually be better at that <laughs> playing the straight man than doing comedy. Cause whenever he breaks off to do shtick, I can't stand it. But when he's just being a jerk in a role, I think it, it works much better. So another thing about, so, so sing like, and the story in sing is a little bit weak, uh, at least the the general the the general sure. premise, but it it completely won me over. I found it to be very charming and very entertaining. I had sympathy for all the characters, and it did something I thought was impossible. Uh, it used the song "Hallelujah" by Leonard Cohen in a way that uh, I did not find cheap or exploitative. Really? Yeah, like the, their use of "Hallelujah" in the film didn't take me out of the film. Like it it felt like oh. This works. It makes sense that that song is happening here and now. Because I typically despise it when that song shows up in a movie. Uh, Simply because it's like, oh, I'm a director who's not talented enough to make people feel something. So I'll just hijack this Leonard Cohen song. Because it's one of the five songs that's all but guaranteed to get men in the audience to cry, I'll put it in here to force them to feel an emotion that I should be able to engender otherwise. Well, but it worked I, well I, I think you can really blame the uh, resurgence of Hallelujah on the original Shrek movie. Yeah. Because that's the first recent, somewhat recent example. And then afterwards, you know, um, oh, it, it was used to, everywhere. for terrible effect in the Watchmen film. Mm-hmm. Just awful. I mean, can't just, he has other songs. Can't we get the song about the famous blue raincoat at least? It's torn at the shoulder. That's a metaphor. You could use that. But yeah, like no, normally, normally when that when I hear any part of that song in a movie, I immediately throw walls up and shut down and get very, very angry at the people making the movie. But I didn't in this, so that's that's a real accomplishment. 
yeah, it's not that he's Leonard Cohen, but I also like the, uh, as far as gravelly voice people go, I like Tom Waits's uh, cover of Waltz and oh, Matilda. It's yeah. good. <coughs> and there's the other thing I, I do like about the movie is that it did take advantage of the fact that it's a jukebox musical. I love the audition scenes where we just yes. get snippets of all these little songs, including the, the alligator doing the robot dance, singing the Humpty Hump. That was great. And you have, don't you have some like piglets or something doing some like K-pop music? Uh, no, there's like a bunch, there's a bunch of uh, ring-tailed lemurs. That's it, or okay. red, No, red pandas. The red pandas, pandas okay. that do a, uh, I, I think it's supposed to be a Japanese pop song, but I could, I could be wrong. Because I feel like when, when the koala's talking to them later using the phrase book, I think it's a Japanese phrase book. There's, they're speaking Japanese, as I recall, what little I know of that language. Um, but yeah, there's a running, there's a running gag where they fail their audition, but anytime someone tells them that, what they hear is you're in the show. That's funny. Like they only hear the most positive things. And so when he uses a phrase book to try to explain to them that they're not in the show, they get furious and slap him and run out in a huff. Ostensibly because he said something horrible. Right. Um, so this shot shows going a bit long. Um, that, that's fine. A lot of but it's, good but it's not uh, three hours long. No, that's true. <coughs> I saw a movie that, you know, from the trailer, I expected it to be um, kind of like goofy Tarantino-style action. Instead, it was more of like a Cold War spy thriller. Oh. And uh, it was good, just not how the marketing was misleading. Uh, I'm talking about Atomic Blonde. Oh, how is that? Charlize Theron and James McAvoy. Very good. But I think what surprised me is I thought... Um, you know, we were looking for something to watch. We rented this on iTunes for, I think, like five bucks or something like that. It's too expensive to rent something, in my opinion, but I'm old. Um, and I, I, you know, we both like, uh, I like Shirley Theron, so does Havana. She really likes James, Max, James McAvoy. I can sort of take or leave him, but he's good in this. It takes place, um, it, it's sort of a, a wraparound story where Shirley Theron is, uh, an agent, a British um, agent for, what is it, MI6? Is that their spy organization? Well, they, they have, like, several M organizations. I think okay, like there's so, an MI5 and MI6. Yeah, so she she's a spy for one of them, and it's set in East and West Germany, like, right before the Berlin Wall falls. And um, so pretty intriguing setting. Um, really good soundtrack, a good use of, um, they do some deep, Cuts. Uh, I believe there's some uh, some Falco on there, and no, it's not Rock Me Amadeus. It's one of his other hits. Because he um, did have other songs. That's pretty cool. I yeah, love had, his cover yeah. of Putting on the Ritz. Uh, that was not um, Falco. That was, that was not Falco. Um, no, no. Uh, oh, but it was another European. Um, same, you know, style, techno style. Um, was it Taco or something? Or, it's not Taco. God, it's, it's something like that. Um, but yeah, Atomic Blonde, good. But I think what surprised me is I thought, oh, I can relax, eat my nacho cheese, my nacho dinner, and uh, watch a fun movie. And instead, like, you have to really pay attention. It's one of those where I feel like I have to watch the movie, like, two or three times to completely get the plot. Because because it's a, it's a spy movie at heart, it's a lot of uh, double-crossing and triple-crossing and um, misleading and plot twists and stuff. Um, oh, I, I can I let you uh, let you know that was in fact Taco who did the '80s. Oh, uh, how about synth that cover? Okay, on the Ritz. 
if you know where we're to go to, put on the Ritz. Um, put on the Ritz! Jeez. You know that Mel Brooks is actively working to rework his Young Frankenstein musical for a uh, huh. premiere on the London stage because it did not perform... Uh, it did not do nearly as well as the producer's musical when it was on Broadway. Recently. Yeah, I heard. I heard a revised version was was coming out. I think it may have already started. I feel like oh, probably. Although it might um, also just be in previews. Um. Yeah, that could be too. I'm not quite sure. And I do want to point out it's it's a shame this song is not in the movie because it should have been. But um, putting on the Ritz, you mean? No, not putting on the Ritz, but in the Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen, the soundtrack has a cover of the Transformers cartoon theme song by 80s band Cheap Trick. Oh, damn. Now, I want to hear that. It's... I'll send you a link. It's not bad. We should close out the the um, show with that song. Absolutely. Oh, actually, can we, can we talk about the music in this? Yes, uh, I, yes. I, I meant to bring this up earlier, but we ran so long. Uh, this, this movie flagrantly abuses some of the best tracks from Green Day's American Idiot. Uh, which ones? The oh, gosh, the the uh, the, the twenty one guns. The worst is, is that... the one is the twenty one guns. Okay, because I guess so. I guess because this, this American is, Idiot's this... a concept album. Is that right? Well, yes. It. Uh, I don't know if it was counts as a concept album, but it was the basis for the um, uh, American Idiot uh, stage Broadway, musical, yeah. which I've which I've seen. Uh, Mary Favor was excellent in that, and I'm saying that legitimately, not just because she's my cousin. Uh, if you can see, it, I don't know if it's playing anywhere, but if it's playing anywhere, go see it. But I mean that that album was written as a response to the jingoism and nationalism of the George W. Bush w. era, Bush. right? And he, in this movie, it is used in support of <laughs> jingoism and nationalism. <laughs> yeah, it's um, but yeah, we should definitely end with that Transformers cover. Cool, cool. Uh, so to see how it stacks up to the cover by Lion. Well, it's n- nothing can beat that Lion cover from the Transformers animated film. Although, um, they mess up the lyrics in that cover. Uh, mess up or add an extra verse to? I mean, they add, you know, there's extra verses because it, it, it talks a bit about the plot of the film, which is fine. But at one point, like, they um, talk, they call, like, Unicron Unicorn or something. It's um I believe they pronounce it properly and say Unicron. I'll have to give it a deep listen, but um anyway, <laughs> that's my favorite Transformers cover. Cool. For what it's worth, uh tune in next week and we should wrap up our look at the Transformers films with Transformers Dark of the Moon. That's one of the worst titles of all time. Is the um, lunatic on the grass? Download us next week to find out. Yeah, I'm looking at the poster. Um, I gotta find a stupid tagline. Um, what? Uh, why don't you go plug something, Thrasher? <laughs> well, okay. So uh, I've you actually insist. had 
uh, I'm happy, happy to mention that I've had a cup, several releases kind of in rapid succession uncharacteristically, which I'm very proud of. Um, so if you go to drivethroughrpg.com, I've got several new books out. Uh, 100 Oddities for a Sewer, which is uh, our uh, book of random encounters, NPCs, and, and artifacts for a sewer environment, which is great for, for urban adventures, whether it's urban fantasy, superheroes, uh, or just straight-up fantasy. Also uh, released, I wrote a player's guide for lizard folk called Cold-Blooded. That is also available on drivethroughrpg.com through Skirmisher Publishing. Uh, and this might be out by the time the episode drops, uh, the working title is The Mutant Race. It is a Pathfinder player's guide for mutants uh, that I've written and illustrated. So there, there, there's a lot of stuff with my name out. If you want to, uh, if you want to help me out uh, by purchasing some of my stuff uh, before any new tax codes take effect, now is the time to do it. <laughs> so before the end of the calendar year? Uh, preferably yes, because uh, not to go into too much sausagey detail but i will be receiving a royalty check uh in Ooh. in 2018 Those based nice. on the sales of the things i've written for skirmisher in 2017 and the more you buy in 2017 the bigger the check will be in 2018 and that that stuff can go a long way it means a lot to uh, independent creators like me so what you're saying is people should buy a whole bunch of your material but then immediately cancel the transaction before it completes. Well, no, because then, then no. you don't get the book and no one gets paid. <laughs> what I'm saying is <laughs> okay. buy my book. Buy my book. Buy okay. my book. Whatever that book happens to be <laughs> at the time. I was not able to find a stupid tagline for uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon. However, there is a book <laughs> called, a vintage book called Under a Dark Moon, True Murders and Mysteries from North Queensland. Huh. And as the cover brag by Robert Reed, it, as the cover brags, it includes the Cape York murders who killed Bevan and Brad Simmons. <laughs> wow. So, uh, I've never read this book, but I guarantee this true crime book, Under a Dark Moon, is more interesting than Transformers' Dark of the Moon. Y you know, you ought to find that book just so you can actually compare the two. I think that would be a really fun experiment. I um okay I'll do my best. This uh what's the publication date on it? Two thousand six. Oh, it's pretty recent. Uh, Australia, of course, because it's Queensland. Hmm, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll I'll try my best. So um, I'm more yeah. of a Perth fellow myself. Oh, uh, that, my brain's not working. I I couldn't even do a a Perth pun <laughs> if I was more with it this morning. Um. Yeah, I've been busy. You know, I, I don't have anything to plug at the moment. I'm, um, I have a few writing things to do. I'm a little bit behind. Uh, I'm, I'm working on uh, an article for a site, uh, Hardcore Gaming 101. I've been doing some retro game pieces for them, and I'm cool. working on a piece on uh, the uh, the independent game Oregon Trail. Have you played it? Oregon, I have, not Oregon. I it's the Oregon zombie thing. What? Yes, Oregon. Oregon. Trail. It's no, a zombie-themed pastiche on Oregon Trail. Oh, that's pretty uh, cool. But they, they have some more unique game mechanics, and it's a little tricky because there's um, maybe three or four different versions of it and trying to suss out the difference. you got to take, take the wheels off your, your battle buggy to wade across the Toxic River, <laughs> then put them back on and keep going. Uh, in the, I think it's the director's cut version, there's radioactive areas where 
it's a, a quicker route to the final destination, uh, which still happens to be Oregon, I think. But um, <laughs> but you get your characters can get infected, and they lose health quicker. Um, instead of you know hunting ox and stuff, you have to fend off zombies while you collect scraps of food left by past survivors. Huh. Uh, there's some, um, if, you know, so you're in, in true zombie fashion, if someone gets bitten by a zombie, they can turn into a zombie if you don't heal them quick enough and attack you and you can choose to just execute them. Oh, and it wow. goes to a very depressing in like, you know, Apple two style graphics of you have to raise the shotgun to your family member's head and pull the trigger. Oh my gosh. Like, it's real George Romero dark stuff. Uh, the music is quite good, but depressing. Um, it, it, it's far better than I thought it would be based on the premise, so um, it, it, it'll be great fun to write about that. Um, but yeah, so working on that. I'm also moving, so um, that's... Are you moving to Oregon? Uh, I, live, I live in Oregon, so yeah, moving to somewhere else in the Portland. It's still in Portland, technically, but it's <laughs> on the outskirts. Um, well, as long as you don't in, die of dysentery. Yeah, we're moving in with our in-laws, which, which is a bit of a, a downsizing to um, uh, for uh, for reasons. I'll just totally understandable. And um, yeah, so my most of my movie collecting is going to be in storage, so I'm in a, a process of um, archiving stuff through Plex, uh, which is, is neat, but it's taking longer than I expected. So I, I figure several trips to the uh, to the storage unit are in my future. Because it'll probably take me six months to rip all my movies and stuff, but once it's all ripped and I'm watching it on my own private media server, I won't have to put the disc in. Because I'm lazy, but um, I don't know. It makes it more convenient. That's more details that anyone cared to know. Um, next week we're talking about Transformers: Dark of the Moon. For sequel cast two, this is Matt, and this is Thrasher. Saying, and let it be known that I am sending this message, so that we know that we are here with our allies, and we shall make our stand, for we have forged a home across the universe where there is freedom and those who oppose us shall know our opposition and yet here we stand actually optimus you're um why why do you like earth so much you've destroyed so much property can't you go back to uh you know uh, robo detroit your home city the economy of Robo-Detroit has been destroyed by the Decepticons and their mismanagement of public funds. I'm primarily here because I like to watch you humans do it. Oh, I, you know, I, there was a 30-foot hole in the wall of my bedroom. I thought that was a little bit suspicious, and I could hear grinding noises. I thought it was just a squirrel in the attic, but now I know you've been uh, watch, watching me get it on with my best friend Wheelie. That was the squirrels. The squirrels are also transformers. It all makes sense. You got end scene. <laughs> That's the true Transformers conspiracy. Never thought you'd be 
so hard to face. You're thinking why this life have to be this hard. And you can't believe you've been dealt this card. Took so long to get here, you wonder how. Gotta take control, the time is now. You know you can't be strong, you remember the time. When you had it all together, you go back in your mind. You're a tempest, we're 